All right, good evening. Great to see so many of you. I uh, hope you're well, hope you're all doing okay, and I hope this is a nice little break from some Pesach preparation and cleaning. Uh, let's get to the juicy stuff. The Seder night, it's what we enjoy. We all love the Seder nights, and of course, you have to get through a few steps of cleaning up along the way and cooking and all that good stuff. Um, so let's uh, whet our appetite, so to speak, for Seder night, because it's beautiful. It really, really is. Um, so what I'm going to do is like this. We have a two-part series, and what I'd like to do is spend tonight giving more of a bird's-eye view of the Seder and the Haggadah, um, and yeah, to really focusing on the big picture. And then next week, my goal is to go into the text. So if you don't have a Haggadah, if you have a Haggadah today, that's great. You don't absolutely need one tonight. Um, but next week, you certainly want to bring an Agada with you, okay? Um, you'll be able to follow even without it, but it will be helpful. Tonight, it's more about understanding the structure of the Agada, some, some more global ideas, just to help guide us as we are going through the Seder. And, and part of the reason I think that's so important, um, there's a certain irony that has been pointed out many a time, and that is that the word that we use for the evening is, we call it the Seder. Seder means something which is misudar, it is organized, it's structured, it has like a certain structure. I don't know about you, but for many, many years, I felt all over the place. I didn't feel like it was structured at all. I felt like, okay, we do this, now we do that, we do this, we do that. You know, it's like you're running around trying to check all the boxes, even if each part independently was meaningful, uh, but sometimes I feel like I would miss the big picture of what we're trying to do, understanding the structure, the name of the night is structure, is order, and I, I felt many times I didn't really appreciate the order and the structure. So that's something that's always important to me, to really, whenever I, I start studying something or I want to engage in something, do something, I want to get the big picture. I think it's a good approach before zooming in. Okay, so today, big picture, um, and we'll start, before we actually get to the Seder, we'll take a step back, and you know, in, in, um, you know, in mystical, uh, in Hasidic circles, and maybe if you have a Hasidic uh, Haggadah, you'll find many little prayers that are said before different sections of the Haggadah. Okay, these are uh, what people call L'shem Yichuds, which, okay, or, or Kavanot. Uh, they're essentially a time and a place to just focus before jumping into something. Okay, so again, many Haggadahs actually incorporated them in for some reason, even if they're not uh, Hasidic, but they'll say things like, Hareini muchan umezuman lekayim mitzvah, so say, I am now prepared um, and set to fulfill the mitzvah of Kiddush, or the mitzvah of eating matzah, or the mitzvah of eating marar. And it's just this middle, little mini statement that you say before, and the idea the, the, where, these, where these statements came from was the, the understanding, the recognition that we just go ahead and we do the mitzvah, and we don't first think about what the goal of the mitzvah is. And so the institution of these Yehi Ratzons, of these different prayers that were made, was really to, to, to ground us and to bring some focus to what we're about to engage in. Okay, so I think we have to ask ourselves before we have our Seder, and I imagine for many of us, our Seder is still going to be very different than it was two years ago, hopefully a little bit better than it was last year. I hope things are a little bit, uh, even if we're still in a much more limited fashion, but there's a, thank God, a light, a shining light at the, the end. We're, we're getting there. We really are. Um, so it seems. And so, um, you know, before we, before we start our Seder, and we want to start thinking about that now, what do we want to gain? What do we want to get out of our Seder? Whether we're hosting a Seder, whether we are going to someone else for a Seder, what is, what, what, what type of Seder is it? And so, one of the points I'm going to make is going to be true whether you're hosting a Seder or not. 
And then the other two points are more focused on people who are um, who are hosting a Seder. But the first point is that the goal of Seder night is for there to be personal transformation. Personal, there has to be change. The goal of life is to change. The goal of the Jewish calendar is that each encounter with a moment, with a certain special time is meant to change us. But it's only going to change if we are bringing some mindset of change, bring some thought of how we're going to experience that. And so, you know, one of the most basic ideas we find in Pesach is not only reflecting on the exodus of past, but trying to make that real to us on an individual basis. How, what am I freeing myself from? And we all in some ways are slaves to something. Again, this is a very basic idea, but the idea is to Spend, if you can, possibly some time reading some books about those ideas before Pesach. Maybe that's too much to ask for. As we're walking around our house, cleaning, getting to work or whatever, maybe some podcast about these ideas. But the point is to be mindful about that. And at the bare minimum, at the bare minimum, there is something incredibly powerful about taking literally 10 seconds before you begin the Seder or before you start each section and reflecting on what it is that you're trying to break free from. You know, when people think of what does spirituality look like, we have a lot of visions in our head of, I don't know, mountaintops and people swaying or whatever. Three seconds. No one at the table even knows what you're doing. You're just there. But just to stop for three seconds and just ask yourself, what am I trying to accomplish tonight? What am I, again, if I want to use that specific example, what am I trying to break free from? It's just, it's in your head. But if we're mindful about that, then we're able to, I, I'm, it, it is transformative just being able to bring a little bit more presence to our Seder. Okay, so that's that's on a personal basis. That's not necessarily a discussion-oriented. We could talk about these things, but there's something incredibly personal about them. And so it's, it's something which I encourage you to do, something I, I try to do every year, um, you know, and it's not something we necessarily discuss as a family, but I know it's on my wife's mind. I know it's on my mind. And you steal those moments, a moment be here, a moment there during the Seder, especially before you begin or before you begin each section, just to try to focus on that. Beyond that, now here I'm going to talk about more, a little bit more about guiding of a Seder. It's not really our focus. We're really going to be focusing on the Haggadah. But for those of you who are hosting people um, or if you're at someone's Seder, there's always room for bringing something more to the Seder. So for some of you, and maybe if it's, if it's a child-friendly Seder, um, you know, whether it's props, costumes, um, you know, I'm just looking at the Zoom screens I have in front of me. There's some incredibly creative ideas that I'm aware of, of from some people here, whether it's about decorating your, your, your house or your room where you're having your Seder or people making incredibly creative Haggadahs that are themed to keep the kids engaged. Um, there's so much you could do and there's no, and there's a whole spectrum. It's as small as pulling out a prop. It's as big and wild um, as, as, again, decorating or creating your own Haggadah. Um, when you invest in it, it, it pays off. It, it, it has a role. It, it impacts your children. It impacts the people at the table. Um, so it's, yeah, cleaning is important, but so is setting the tone for, for the Seder night. So take the time to do that. Um, if you have a more intellectually driven crowd, um, then, you know, there's so much beautiful literature that you could just spice your Seder up with. Um, there's, I'll just share with you. I just want to read it to you because it's such a beautiful piece. But um, are you all familiar with um, a piece called Magid? It's a beautiful poem called Magid. Familiar with it? No, mess. No, I'll, I'll, I'll read it together. Um, just again, and then we're going to jump into that gutta. But I just I'm using this as a as a way of just pointing out these are small little things you could do to add to the Haggadah. The Haggadah is a template, and and our goal is to make sure that the Seder night is engaging. So we we're, we're able to go ahead and add to that template. We're able to, we use the template as as a way of of setting the tone. 
but then we could add to it. So I'll just read to you uh, some passages from this uh, poem because it's such a beautiful one um, and it, it could spawn so much beautiful discussion. So here we go by Marge Piercy. The courage to let go of the door, the handle. The courage to shed the familiar walls whose very stains and leaks are comfortable as little moles of the upper arm, stains that recall a feast, a child's naughtiness, a loud blattering storm that slapped the roof hard pouring through. The courage to abandon the graves dug into the hill, the small bones of children and the brittle bones of the old whose marrow hunger had stolen. The courage to desert the tree planted and only begun to bear. The riverside where promises were shaped, the streets where their empty pots were broken. The courage to leave the place whose language you learned as early as your own, whose custom, however dangerous or demeaning, binds you like a halter you have learned to pull inside, to move your load. The land fertile with the blood spilled on it. The roads mapped and annotated for, annotated for survival. The courage to walk out of the pain that is known into the pain that cannot be imagined. Mapless, walking into the wilderness, going barefoot with a canteen into the desert. Stuffed in the stinking hold of a rotting ship, sailing off the map into dragon's mouths. Kathai, India, Siberia, Goldna, Medina, leaving bodies by the way like abandoned treasure, so they walked out of Egypt. So they bribed their way out of Russia under loads of straw, so they steamed out of the bloody, smoking uh, charnel house of Europe on overloaded freighters, forbidden all ports. Out of pain into death or freedom or different pain, painful dignity, into squalor and politics. We Jews are all born of wanderers with shoes under our pillows and a memory of blood that is ours raining down. We honor only those Jews who changed nights, those who chose the desert over bondage, who walked into the strange and became strangers and gave birth to children who could look down on them standing on their shoulders for having been slaves. We honor those who let go of everything but freedom, who ran, who revolted, who fought, who became other by saving themselves. You can read it again slowly if you'd like. But the idea, I think, is a very powerful one, uh, one to think about as we think about the notion of freedom, and that is that every time that we break free and we move on to something of freedom, there's also a certain sacrifice. You know, it's not as binary, as simple as, simple, you know, leaving bondage to freedom. It's, oh, it's so great. Everything that's being left behind, when you, when you are breaking free from something, there's a reason that you're there. There's a reason you're stuck. There's something holding us back to the thing or place or idea that we're trying to break free from. And I think this poem beautifully, poetically, uh, brings that point across. Okay, so this is all general, general. Again, you know, use the Haggadah as a template to, to keep things exciting. Um, use, uh, pr add props, add excitement, decorate, decorate, decorate. Um, really, we've, we've, we've started decorating our house a little bit for, per, for, for Pesach, excuse me, and it's just, it adds so much. It really does. Um, and again, on a personal level, in your head, in your heart, to think about what personal transformation you want to accomplish that night. It's something when you're, and I, it's hard, but when I'm cleaning, I try to think in the back, back of my mind, just for a few seconds, what is the thing, what is the idea that I want to be focusing on on Seder night? Okay, let's now jump into the, the Seder, and we'll begin with the Seder plate. Now, the Seder plate is very interesting historically because, um, you know, we don't really find a notion of the Seder plate as we know it. We have this idea that the foods are brought out, the foods that are going to be eaten, uh, but the development into all the different specific compartments comes along Sometime in the past thousand years, uh, there's some fascinating customs um, in some Sephardic places. The custom is that the quote-unquote woman of the house comes out with pomp and ceremony with the Seder plates and holds it over her husband's head. And, uh, you know, they make a whole ceremony of her passing it on to him and then putting it on the table. Anyway, it's just cool because 
Pesach just has these amazing customs. And the Seder plate obviously evolved and became much, in some ways, much more central. The, the pieces, the different elements of food that we eat are there. And we'll talk about why they play such a central role on Seder night. Um, but the Seder plate has developed into a very central role on Pesach. I'll share with you, I'm going to read to you what the Arizal says about the Seder plate. And don't worry about understanding everything he says, but I'm reading it just to give you a general sense of the general idea that he's trying to convey with the Seder plate. He says like this, arrange the plate, there's a translation, arrange the plate on the table by taking three matzahs and placing them one on the other. Okay, three matzahs. First, the one that represents Israel, the Israelite, then the, the Levi, then the Kohen, then the third matzah. These, he says, are the three intellectual faculties, Chachma, Bina, Dat. Okay, they represent three different elements of our thinking process. Above all these on the right, place the Zoroah, corresponding to Chesed. And opposite, okay, so that's the, that's the, 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 the roasted uh, bone, right? Um, so you, that corresponds to the notion of Chesed, of kindness. Opposite to the left, place the egg, which represents Givura, strength. Beneath them in the center, place the Maror, which represents something called Tiferet. Beneath the Zeroah on the right, place the Charoset, which is, represents Netzach. Opposite on the left, below the egg, place the Karpas, that's the vegetable, which represents Hod. Under the Maror, place the Chazeret, used for Korach, which is Yusod. And the plate itself is Malchut, which encompasses all the ten spherots. Did you catch that all? Okay. Uh, but the point is, what, what is Arizal saying over here? Without getting deep into this, what he's saying is that the Seder plate represents the ten spherot. The ten spherot, uh, the idea of the ten spherot is that all of, 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 of existence could be broken down into ten different elements, okay? These, this, we're talking about godly existence, spiritual existence could be brought, broken down into ten different elements. And what he's saying is that the Seder plate somehow brings that all together. Again, it's this idea of Seder. It's the idea of restructuring and reorganizing and reconstructing our lives. And so, again, without getting into the nitty-gritty of the details, what he's trying to convey is that the goal, when we look at that Seder plate, the function of the Seder plate is that it's there to remind us that our goal on, 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 on Pesach night is to be able to reconstruct a certain reality. We're trying to recreate our own world, and that's represented through the Seder plate. Okay, we're not going to be so mystical all evening. Don't worry. Here we go. Let's now begin the Seder itself. We begin with Kiddush. Okay, Kiddush is something we always do, um, right? We, we're, we're always making Kiddush, and that's fine. What's unique What's different on Seder night is the fact that we don't only drink one cup of wine, we drink four cups of wine, right? Uh, what is the idea behind drinking four cups of wine? So we all know that the Torah describes, or we, may, we, we may have heard in our lives that the Torah describes the redemption in four different terms. There are four different terms that describe the different levels of redemption. First, the Jewish people are going to break free from Egypt, and then they're going to leave Egypt, and then they're going to... These different terms describe a growing process of freedom. Again, it's not you're a slave and now you're free, but there is a process. There is growth. There is the physical bondage that is, that, that is the first step, and then there is leaving the land, you're no longer a stranger, and then there is developing a different new mindset, and then there is becoming your own free, independent individual, master of your own fate, right? There is growth. 
It's not just freedom. That's a very simplistic way of looking at it. The notion of four different terms that describe freedom is that there is a depth, there is growth in freedom. It's on a continuum. It's not slave or free, but rather slave is over here on one side of the continuum. Freedom is here and we are moving along. And so one way of understanding the four cups of wine is as follows. Um, you know, I don't know what you had for, for dinner tonight, but whatever you had, I imagine if you had one serving, maybe it was really good you had two servings. Um, but, you know, as time goes on, you get more and more full, right? Three servings, eh, right? Um, so, or, you know, and, and that's true for most drinks as well. Uh, you know, I have a whole lot of orange juice left over from my daughter's bat mitzvah. I overordered. It's a, yeah, it's a problem. Um, anyway, it, it doesn't expire for a while. And thank God I had a cold this week, which is basherit. It's wonderful. So I've been drinking like orange juice nonstop, but there's only so much orange juice you could drink. I'm okay, people. Uh, but there's only so much orange juice you could drink that like it, it, you're full, right? Orange juice fills you up. Alcohol is actually very unique and very interesting. Okay. Um, and again, of course, without abusing alcohol, but there is something unique in the sense that actually alcohol opens your appetite for more alcohol, obviously to a point as well. But actually, the more you drink, the more a person actually is, has a thirst for drink. Okay. That is something which is unique to alcohol. And so some understand the idea of the four cups, just like freedom, slavery to freedom. It's a deepening of the experience. We're moving along and it gets deeper. It's not just step one, step two. They're built upon one another. You're getting deeper and deeper into the idea of freedom. So too, we drink this wine as a way of deepening our expression, deepening. uh, The the, the point is that as each cup is, as we drink each cup, there is a deeper experience. We're able to actually enjoy it more, not less, because the idea is that freedom is is there's growth in freedom, there's a depth in freedom, and wine, the drinking of wine, represents that. That's one possible idea. Another idea which I like to think about, a very important idea, as we drink these cups of wine, and that is that freedom is freedom over our impulses. You know, we could drink wine and act crazy. We could drink wine and do silly things. We could drink wine and do reckless things. We could drink wine and do terrible things, right? Or we could have a Seder night. And yes, we could, for those who drink wine, again, we'll talk about, we're not talking about the, the halachos right now. If a person does not like wine or should not be drinking wine, they certainly could drink grape juice. And if, yeah, yeah but, but the point is that typically people would drink wine. And the idea is despite the fact that a person's drinking four cups of wine, I don't know about you, I don't normally drink four cups of wine, it impacts you. But nonetheless, what are we doing? We're having a spiritual night. Right? That is one great expression of freedom. Freedom is not that I'm therefore going to go and respond to all my base desires. I'm in control of myself. That is a much more sophisticated, elevated form of freedom. And so, yes, the drinking of wine, and yes, a lot of wine, gives us the opportunity to express an element of freedom. Okay? That's Kaddish. That's Kiddish. That's something to think about. Yeah, enjoy the wine. As it gets better, think about the fact that freedom gets better. Freedom gets, freedom gets deeper, but also use this opportunity to control yourself, to say, despite the fact that I'm drinking wine, I'm going to use it to sing with a little more heart, to get into it with a little more passion, because I'm not a slave to my impulses. I'm able to elevate myself at this time. Okay. What's after Kaddish? Um, we have Orchatz. Orchatz is when we wash our hands as if we're washing for bread. Okay, people have different customs. Some have it that only the head of the house washes their hands. Some have it that everyone washes. Does everyone wash your hands at your Seder? Anybody? Yeah? Okay. Oh, cool. Like 50 uh, 50-50 over here. I don't know. Some of you have your screens off. Okay. Yeah, so it takes a little bit longer, but it's nice. Everyone gets involved. Everyone gets engaged. Um, and okay, it's a beautiful thing. What's the idea behind it? So 
in ancient times, for whatever reason, we are not as strict about this right now, but, but, but certainly in, in the ancient times and in, certainly in the temple, there were many laws revolving around purity and impurity. Okay, there, there, there are heightened laws. If we think the laws of kosher are detailed, uh, there's a whole new different set of laws called tuma and tara, purity and impurity. And if different foods come into contact with different liquids, etc., etc., there were cons- there were issues of impurity. And one of depends on the level of impurity. You'd have to wash your hands like we do for bread to to you know, um, and that would be something that's done. Now we don't typically so in ancient times and not even in such ancient times, if you were to dip a solid into a liquid you would have to wash your hands, okay? That's what was done and certainly was done in the temple, in the Beis HaMikdash, okay? So why are we doing this only on Seder night, okay? So the Nitziv, Rebbe Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, one of the great, great thinkers, uh, Rosh Yeshivas in the 19th century, um, he, he writes as follows. He explains that, again, as I said, in the Beis HaMikdash, in the temple, they were extremely careful about the laws of purity and impurity. And what we're trying to do is we begin the Seder. Again, there's an order here. There's a structure. As we're beginning the Seder, yes, we have to eat this food item, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But before we do so, we are enhancing and we're elevating the levels of purity and impurity much more than we normally do. Normally, the priests in the temple, they wash their hands. You and I, uh uh-uh. Okay? But on Seder night, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make our home a temple. And the truth is, on the very first Pesach, where do they slaughter their animals? Where, was the slaughter- Where did the slaughtering take place? There was no temple. It took place in their homes. In other words, the very first temple, the very first holy place in Judaism was actually the Jewish home. As time went on, the Beit HaMikdash or the Mishkan, the temple, the tabernacle was built as a replication of that. But the truth is our home is the original temple. And what we're trying to do on Seder night is we are trying to touch, get in touch with that idea. We are trying to elevate our home, elevate our mindsets, and therefore we act like Konim. According to some, the reason that um, some men have a custom to wear white, right? Many men have a custom to wear a kittel, a white garment. Why? The Kohen, the priest, would wear a white garment. The idea is that we are Kohanim, we are priests. We are trying to elevate our home. Our home is a night of sanctity. And again, if we're trying to set the tone, that's an important thing to think about. As you're washing your hands, you know, there are many different things you could talk about on Seder night. If it's a temple, though, you probably want to think twice about talking about certain topics, right? Maybe pregame, plan a little, maybe even bring a poem uh, that you want to read and discuss. But the point is, your home is going to be a temple. We can't always have a temple. We can't always live in that mindset. You can't live in a temple. But for one night a year or two nights a year for us out of Israel, we are trying to make our home like a temple. So I'm very into, you know, having a mindset that you're thinking about as you're engaging in these things, as you're washing your hands. Again, you know, it's two seconds, but to think I am like a priest. I am trying to elevate my house. I'm trying to act a little bit more holy than usual. I think that could go a long way. And it's not an act. I want to, maybe I want to clarify. It's not an act. It's a way of putting our best selves, our best foot forward. And that's what we're doing on Pesach night. We are making our house into a temple. We are trying to recreate ourselves. And one way of doing so is starting on the right foot in doing something in a, in a holy fashion. Okay, let's move on. What's after Kadesh Borchatz? What's next? Yell it through the screen. Thank you. Karpas. Okay, that's right. So Karpas. So there are many different customs. The, the you know, of what vegetable to dip into salt water. Um, okay, who does celery here? Any celery people? Okay, we got some celery. Who's with me on the potato crowd? Potatoes? There we go. Okay, what else do we have? I don't know. Anything else? No? Yes, no? Okay. Depa- uh, 
The Goldmans do something else. I can't see. I can't hear what it is. Cucumbers. Cucumbers. Wow. Fascinating. Cool. We do onion, unfortunately. Onion. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. Uh, my father insists on it. That's what they always did. Okay, that's what they always right. did. You know what? I love it. I parsley. love parsley. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Love it. You know what? I, I, I don't keep all my, my father's not on this call. My mother's not on this call. I don't keep all my family's customs. I'll be the first to admit it. But Pesach night, I really try to because that, that's, this is the night of tradition. This is the night of passing things on. So uh, I happen to like potatoes and salt water. Frankly, I think it tastes great. Uh, but, but, uh, but that's just me. But the point is, I would I would strongly encourage keeping whatever your custom you have, even, I'm sorry, Aaron, if it's an onion. So what's the deal? What are we doing? You know, when, as kids, we're always taught about the salt water, right? The salt water, the salt water is about the tears of the Jews. The truth is, the salt water is parenthetical to what we're doing, okay? If you look at the early sources, I'm speaking, um, you know, it, the salt water was, that was their, like, dressing back in the day, okay? You know, you and I take a vegetable, we put it in Caesar salad, they, that, that was their sophisticated dressing. They would dip their vegetables into salt water. The main thing is the vegetable. The salt water is, is, is again, is secondary to it. I wouldn't say just stop using the salt water. You know, someone once asked me, said, well, could I use a French fry dipped into ketchup? Okay, no. I mean, you could do whatever you want, but, uh, but the point is that, so, so we do salt water, but the point is the main thing is the vegetable. So what are we doing? What, what's the, so, right, I, again, this is one of those things. You need to go back to the original sources. As a child, I always thought it's about the salt water. You look at all the traditional sources, they're not even talking about the salt water. Yeah, their focus is on the vegetable. What's the vegetable about? What are we trying to do? What are we trying to do? So the Bach, one of the, one of the commentators on the, on the Talmud, uh, excuse me, on the Shulchan Aruch, says that the idea behind, um, behind, the, behind the vegetable is that it's an appetizer. It's an appetizer. That's what it is. And the truth is in the ancient, you know, you and I, especially us Americans over here, an appetizer, you know, smorgasbord, you eat a two whole meals and then you go to the main meal, right? We are crazy, okay? Right? But in a normal world, you have a small, a few vegetables and that's your appetizer. It's a small salad. And that's really what it is. It's a small, very, very small um, salad. That's, that's essentially where it comes from. That's his, and I, we're, this is an earlier source. We're not talking about, there's not apologetics. Why do we have an appetizer? So he says very simply, his explanation is that wealthy people have appetizers. Again, you and I, thank God, we're all quote unquote wealthy. We live, we're very spoiled. We live in a, in a different world. We're all, you know, we're having a, two courses is, is the norm for, for you know, in, in, in our culture. But, but to have an appetizer, you know, they don't normally have appetizers for, uh, you know, a McDonald's Happy Meal. I've never had one, but right? But it's not, you know, an appetizer is something you have at a, at a restaurant, somewhere fancy, something nice, right? And so the idea of karpas, the idea of the vegetable, is that we're having an appetizer as an expression of wealth, as an expre- which is ultimately seen as an expression of freedom, okay? So that's an ancient explanation. But here, here's a question on that approach, and that is, what is the goal of an appetizer? To create... An appetite, right? It's supposed to whet your appetite. Again, our appetizers don't do that. They fill us up. But in the real world, the, the notion, the idea of an appetizer is it's supposed to whet your appetite. Here's the problem. The problem is that we have carpas, we have your celery, your onion, your potato, and you don't eat for another fill in the blank. Half hour, hour, two hours, three hours, depends on how many different Torah you have in your suda, right? But uh, your seder. But the bottom line is it's certainly not your typical appetizer in the sense that it makes you hungry. It's supposed to enhance your appetite. And then you can't eat for a very long time. Strange. So if Yosef Tzvi Ramon, and this is picking up on an idea that we mentioned not too long ago, suggests that, yes, he says it's exactly the case. 
He says that, again, going back to what we spoke about with wine, the idea of freedom is that we are not only free to do whatever we want, but we're free also to not do what we do not want. In other words, yes, I'm hungry, right? So freedom could be expressed in a very base way as saying, well, then therefore I'm just going to eat whatever it is that's in front of me. But there's a more sophisticated, more refined form of freedom, which says I'm going to control myself. I am independent of my base needs and desires and wants. And therefore, yes, you have that little thing and halachically, you're really supposed to have a very small amount. You're supposed to have less than a kezayis, which is about a golf ball size, okay? And you dipped it into salt water. So you want more. I don't know about you, I always want more potatoes. And all the kids are always scrambling and getting more potatoes, right? Or more whatever it is that you're eating. Halachically, ideally, ideally, you're supposed to have less. Not the end of the world if you have more. But ideally, you're supposed to have a little bit less. And, what's, and, and he suggests, and that's exactly the point. I am hungry. But I'm going to deal with that. It's okay. I'm free. I, I'm not, yeah, my stomach might be grumbling, but, but I'm bigger than that. I'm better than that. I don't need to respond to all of my needs. So that's another way of thinking about karpas. Let's keep on going, okay? Let's move on, right? Kadesh, Orchatz, karpas, yachatz, right? Uh, yachatz is we break the middle matzah into two. The smaller half stays between the others. The larger one is hidden in a bag. And that we save for the afikomen. Okay, now, um, let's see. Let, let's start here. So the, 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 the simple understanding and the basic understanding of this is that we are trying to now begin to convey the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim of the Exodus, and we're going to do so in a demonstrative experiential fashion. And so we want to demonstrate as we begin the Seder night how we are or we were slaves. Matzah was a food, actually, uh, one of the 11th century, 12th century uh, commentators. Who was it? I'm, I'm blanking on who it was. He describes how when he, whoever it was, he describes how when he went to Egypt to go on some travels, he saw that they were feeding the slaves matzah. Amazing. You know, we're talking about 800 years ago. Why? It makes a lot of sense. It takes a while to digest. I don't have to tell anyone, right? It takes a while. It's heavy. It's dense, right? You give them a little bit. It stays in the system for a while. And it's a good food to feed your slaves. And so this was, matzah was a slave food. And the idea of breaking it in half and keeping half for later is what a slave does. If you're wealthy, if you have what you want, you eat whatever you want. And then you go into Instacart and you shop and you get whatever you need, right? But if you don't know where your next paycheck's going to come from, if you don't have any food in the cupboard or money to buy food, then you save. And so the idea of breaking the matzah and keeping some of it for later, putting away in a bag, is a way of expressing, A, the matzah itself expresses the notion of poverty. But further than that, the idea is that our, um, that the matzah saved is a way of expressing our, um, our sense of being poor. So we're trying to, again, experience the, 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 the transformation from slavery to freedom. Now, uh, just parenthetically, when we talk about the afikomen, I just want to mention the Gemara in discussing Seder nights, Gemara Msachim, um, discusses, it says the following. It says, Chotvin es hamatzos. Chotvin es hamatzos. What is chotvin? And it says, you, you do this, this thing called chotvin with the matzas in order to engage the children. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean, chotvin et hamatzos? So the word chotef means to snatch. It means to snatch. So if you look at the Talmud, you look at the primary commentator, Tarashi, Rashi says, you know what he says? This is amazing. For people with little children, listen closely. He says that you should quickly get to the eating of matzah so that the children will stay awake. You hear me? 
right? In other words, we normally, yeah, okay, so um, I, I have mixed feelings about this. I'll tell you, you know, as a kid, I was hungry, but I also, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed, um, enjoyed and hated and loved and, and was struggling with my family Seder. It was terribly long, but it was also incredibly long. It was beautiful. All the Divrei Torah, all the singing until we finally got to eat. But there's an approach, Rashi says, what the Gemara is suggesting is that you go very quickly so you could get to the matzah section so that the kids are going to stay engaged. The kids can't be engaged so easily to all the text. Okay? That's an approach. That's one interpretation. Okay? Not everyone understands it that way. Some understand what Rashi means is that give the kids matzah early, but you should still read Magid slowly. Okay, whatever approach you want to take. The Rambam understands that it doesn't mean that you should go quickly to get to matzah. What it means is that you impact, that you um, that you pass the matzah from person to person. You take it from one person's hand to the next um, as a way of engaging people. It doesn't have any intrinsic value, but you pass the matzah like hot potato around the table as a way of engaging the children. Okay, so essentially, if, according to this interpretation, what the Gemara here is telling us is engage the children, engage those who wouldn't otherwise be engaged. And my family say that I have a stash of candies. If you ask a good question, you get a candy. If you get a good answer, you get a candy. Whatever it needs, we need to do to, to engage the children. The adults like getting the candies too, and that's fine. The adults could get them as well. But here's what I'm getting to. There is later sources that start speaking about the word chotef. Maybe it doesn't mean that we do it deliberately. We eat them. It means snatching, meaning go through the Seder quickly to get to the matzah. Nor does it mean you pass the matzah around and around. Rather, it should be read literally. That the matzah should be snatched. Okay? That someone should steal the matzah. What we call stealing of the afikomen. Okay? Now, the first source that I found that spoke about this actually framed it as this, like this. It said... There are those who interpret the Gemara incorrectly. And there are those who have a terrible custom. Then on the night of Pesach, instead of focusing on spiritual values, they steal from their parents. And it's terrible. Okay, I'm just telling you what the Gemara, I think it's the Kolbo who says this. Uh, but that said, there is a widespread custom that developed that it is, uh, you know, it's done in jest. Obviously, no one's really stealing anything. Um, and the source is the Gemara, the Gemara that says that you should snatch the matzah. And the Gemara says, clearly, why do we do so? Here's the key point. The reason we do so is to engage the children. So here's the challenge. If we're going to allow them to snatch the matzah and they are old enough that they could carry any form of a conversation and they're going to spend the entire section of Magid running around their house looking for a good hiding place and they're not engaged in the Seder at all because they're so busy running and hiding it, then we completely miss the point. If you're able to figure things out in a way that you could keep them at the table. They could leave. They could take breaks. They're kids, of course. But the, you, you've constructed the stealing of the afikomen as a way of engaging them to the Seder. Not to keep them up for the meal, but to engage them to the, the, the meat and potatoes, excuse the, 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 the term. But you know, if you engage them to the point of Seder night, then that's a success. Okay? So, yes. This idea of stealing the afikomen possibly goes all the way back to the Talmud, but the Talmud is very clear. The goal is to engage them to the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, and if we don't do that, then we're kind of missing the boat. Okay, let's move on to the, the, the main, main section, and that is Magid. The goal of Magid, the goal of Magid is to tell the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. For some people, it makes sense to do it fast. For some people, you have the time and the patience and the, and the interest to go slow. You could skip sections. That's okay. Um, you know, there's a section all the way at the end, uh, which says, Roman Gamliel used to say, if you didn't say these three things, then you didn't fulfill your obligation. So I would say at the very least, bare minimum, 
say that one section where it explains the Pesach, the carbon Pesach, the Paschal lamb represents this, the Matzah represents that, the Mar represents this. But it's essentially a long story, and there's actually incredible amounts of educational tools that are exhibited in the storyline of the, of the Haggadah, because we use visualizations, right? We're supposed to pick up the matzah. We're supposed to spill out the wine. We're sp-